Unification 2 is a truly unusual episode to talk about for me because it's still an episode I like, but it... <laughs> There's issues. Very serious, very considerable issues with the episode. Before I go any further, I want to mention something. I mentioned that Malachi, or Malachi, or however you say his name, Throne, who played Pardak, uh, he was back last time. I wanted to mention he played Commodore Mendez, a.k.a. someone else who had already had a cooperation and co coordination and actually offensive interactions with Spock uh, back in the episode of the Menagerie, or rather the Menagerie Part 1 and 2. I just wanted to specifically call that one out. So I've talked about most of the behind-the-scenes stuff last time. What I want to mention here is that a few people regretted this episode, thought it wasn't really that good, and one of the biggest ones was Michael Piller, the one who wrote it. Now, I was just kind of nodding, like, yeah, okay, I could see that, until I read his entire interview, which is it's just huge, it's a gigantic thing, I think I got a copy of it, about why exactly he felt the episode didn't work. And I found myself disagreeing with him on every point, of which there are two main ones. Number one, he felt the episode was too talky, and number two, he felt the episode was too political. <laughs> of all of the problems I have with this episode, neither of those are they. Now, of course, that's just my opinion, and Lord knows I don't know Jack, but I also understand being very self-critical. <laughs> Lord knows I constantly tear myself up and have anxiety attacks about how horrible I do at this show, right? But the point is, if anything, I felt like those were the two stronger points of the episode, that it is a very discussion and character interaction-heavy show, and that it's a, a, a deeply political show, which not only makes sense, and in fact, in many ways, this, this episode is effectively the conclusion of the Romulan arc throughout the course of TNG, since we'll basically never really see the Romulans again after this point. But it also kind of fulfills the scale necessary. This is Spock. You don't just bring Spock on to do some random thing. You, you do something big with it. You do something significant with it. Now, th when I say that, it is worth noting I don't necessarily mean galactic level. I don't necessarily mean it has to be some huge doomy thing. Because there's another episode, which is coming up, I don't know when, but at some point in the future, called Relics, which I know a lot of you know about, which is nowhere near as big or as doomy but nevertheless does exactly what it should. It takes one of the TOS characters and pretty much makes an episode custom-tailored for them. And, well, that's actually kind of what I like about Relics and what I like about this episode, because Spock... Well, the, 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 the Relics episode is all about the tech. It's all about improvisational, it's all about engineering, and in many ways it's all about the past and how things have moved forward. This episode, focused on Spock is all about the diplomacy and well, and the politics, but also the natural evolution thing. Which brings me to my next point really quick here. One of the things that Spock says flat out in this episode is something that was already posited as an idea by the writers, and in the writer's room several times, the idea that Romulus, the Romulan people, would naturally lead themselves towards social evolution into being basically Vulcans. I don't know what I think about that. That's a very interesting concept, and I think that's going to come heavily down to opinion. As ever, I'm curious what you guys think. I'm very hesitant on the idea. I actually rather like Romulans. In fact, I think we some of the really actual Romulan Romulans we see that aren't just mwahaha, I'm evil, are fascinating and engaging characters and lead to a fascinating insight into an intriguing culture. I also have to admit I am heavily biased because I've played Star Trek Online, which has done a whole lot with the Romulans, 
which is good because, as I mentioned, the Romulans basically leave Star Trek here until they show back up over on DS9, and even there they don't really show up frequently, so it's just kind of an intermittent thing. Either way, I'm not sure, but what I do like... What I do like is the idea that Spock has reached a point where he believes a society is, is about to undergo a significant significant a dynamic shift in its mindset. They're about to embrace a new paradigm in existence. And he's seen this happen before because Star Trek VI, he in fact directly references Star Trek VI and passively references Kirk in the matter of this. And he also mentions how he basically dragged Kirk and McCoy and the crew of the Enterprise into the events of Star Trek VI, which caused significant issues. Now remember, this came out before Six, but also they filmed all this well after Six had concluded. So they, they had all the information necessary to reference it properly, which was nicely done. But I mention this because those are probably the only two times Spock has really been at the forefront of a significant cultural shift in his lifetime. And thus, his logic here, <laughs> which I, I actually find funny because it's not really fully logical, but his logic here of wanting to not get anyone else involved or hurt, or damaged in the process, does make a degree of sense. This also then leads to something else. I mentioned why not mention it to Starfleet. Well, Picard has this bit where he basically is like, you should have consulted us, you should have involved the Federation, because this is something that's going to have a significant impact on the Federation. Well, now hang on. I could be wrong, but I thought last time the Federation didn't care about things that affected it so long as they were a purely internal matter. That was something that was hammered into our heads back in Redemption more than once, and it will come up again in the future as well. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, that's actually not as incongruent as I thought, because picture it this way. Spock knows the Federation policies and council, and so he would, he would know that his efforts here would affect the Federation, but it would be a fully internal thing, and therefore they would want him to not get involved, because the Federation doesn't get involved with internal matters. So he didn't tell them because he knew they'd say no because of the same internal matter thing as the Klingons, and then he would have to basically break from Starfleet and directly defy orders in order to come here. It was more logical to simply not inform anyone, close his affairs, and dedicate himself to this. Anyways, as a quick aside, I just want to mention this. This is actually the last time we see Nimoy play Spock, historically speaking, until uh, Star Trek 2009, actually. That is a gap of about 18 years. It's interesting to think about in hindsight. Um, I mentioned that I've seen Nimoy at a, at a convention. I talked with him briefly. I, I, I did a video about it when I found out that Nimoy died, because uh, it hit me pretty hard. It hit me right in the face. And I mention that because that was actually after that, in that period of time. And I don't know if anything ever changed or altered his opinion there, but I, I sometimes wonder what he thought about his role in that 18 years of not doing it. Anyways, so... Uh, this episode doesn't make a lot of sense at almost any level. So first of all, we have to accept the premise that the Romulans are turning into the Vulcans, which I don't, but whatever... Then we have to accept that a Klingon bird of prey can just sit in orbit of the Romulan Star Empire's capital and not only remain undetected, but semi-regularly beam people up and down and also contact the Enterprise back and forth. Now, they at least try to, to, to explain away the contact part. They do not explain the beaming up and down part. <sighs> okay. Sure. 
keeping in mind by this point in Star Trek, ways to to see and detect through cloaks have been developed. So it's not like the Romulans theoretically wouldn't have any ability to detect cloaks. Or maybe they really don't. I don't know. There's got to be something going on here. Anyways, then there's the fact that there's a proconsul. Actually, before I talk about it, I want to talk about Detan. Because, or Detan. I actually forget how they say it. I just wanted to mention him in brief because he's actually one of my favorite recurring Romulan characters in STO, and that's all I have to say about him. It's just funny to see him here as just a kid, because, you know, STO occurs quite a bit in the future. So we see the proconsul, and he agrees to meet. Okay, that's already dangerous. Then the proconsul is smooth, amiable, and smiles a lot. Now, what I find funniest about this is when I was watching this for the first time, me and Mom both looked at each other like, oh my god. Because we were terrified. And it's like, red alert, red alert, red alert. What's funny is, Sela walking into the scene wasn't even necessary for us to understand that he is one of the bad guys. Because he's demonstrating it so openly. Now, what I like about that is Spock correctly deduces that. Because Spock's not an idiot. Picard similarly deduces that, despite not having even been there. Spock decides to go ahead with it. Why? Logic. No, really. Spock decides to go ahead with it because... There is a trap here, and he doesn't know what they are up to. And therefore, he will play the role in order to continue to garner more information. It's, it's, a, it's a quote that was tried to, to be used over in Star Wars Episode Three and kind of failed at it, but it is a legitimate strategy. It's basically, I see a trap right there. Now, I know that trap's there, and I know that trap's coming, so I'm going to deliberately spring it so that I can spring it on my terms. Now, that doesn't always work, because sometimes that's the obvious trap, and then there's the hidden trap. And sometimes the trap is something you just can't deal with. But it is still a valid strategy, especially when you're in a situation with basically nothing going for you, as Spock is in this situation. So, I'm kind of with him on that. Then Sela shows up. <laughs> now... Yeah. Well, actually, no, I'm sorry, we're not there yet. What happens first is we see a great scene with Data and Spock. And it is a great scene. The, the two, this is one of the only times, no, I think this is actually the only time this ever happens. When two, so Star Trek tends to divvy up characters based on roles. Not class, not job, not position, but the role they play in the narrative. Uh, Sci-Fi Debris calls this the royal smart person. But basically there is usually a smart person, right? It's Dax over in DS9. Uh, it varies on Voyager, but it eventually ended up being Seven of Nine on, on Voyager. Uh, it is to Paul over on Enterprise. It was Spock on TOS, and it's Data on TNG. To my knowledge, this is the only time two of these characters actually interact with each other. It is a surprisingly interesting scene, because it's not just them speaking dry nonsense at each other, although the necessary exposition is there, but instead what we see is some good character moments between the two. If you were to put humanity right in the middle, Data is trying to reach it, and Spock is trying to leave it. And yet, as Data accurately points out, and as Spock acknowledges, Spock is still someone who has been, let's call it, altered by not only his human side, but his human experiences. As was pointed out back in Star Trek IV, you know how to lie, don't you remember? The hell I don't. Um, <laughs> but again, I point this out because this this also kind of serves as a very quiet and deliberate, from what I understand, hint as to what Spock himself will say in one of my favorite quotes of all of Star Trek. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. I love that quote. I really do. Um, and there's just some good stuff between the two of them. 
I also find it fascinating because it's kind of a similar dynamic that Q had with data back in, uh, I don't remember which one that was, Q-less? I, I get the Q episodes confused as far as title, I'll be honest with you, but it's the one with where Q lost his powers. Q now being forced to be human, whereas Data aspires to it. It's a similar circumstance, and it's just a good scene. So then, then Sela shows up. Sorry for bouncing it off there. Now, I want to talk about Sela briefly, because this is my last opportunity to do so. She's never in the show again. I've already talked about how much I feel that was a huge mistake, so let's just move on from that. Instead, what I want to talk about is Sela herself. She's 23. And she mentions how she doesn't get to write that much. And at multiple points, this could just be me reading into it, or this could be Crosby's performance. But she comes across as someone who isn't what you'd call happy in her role, despite being in a position of tremendous power. This woman is 23 and half human. And yet, despite those disadvantages, she not only had a general serving under her back in Redemption Part 2, she is someone who could speak, at the very least, as an equal to the proconsul of the Senate, and who basically had a senator working for her. This woman has tremendous influence and power, either because she's a part of the Tal Shiar, which hasn't even been invented yet, it's worth noting, or because there is some aspect of the military that she just has tremendous influence over. I have always had the personal theory that that is universally because of her father, that he was someone very well connected and very well attached, and basically shoved her up the ranks, that through her dedication and skill she was able to manage it, but it was not a career she chose, hence her general discomfort with it. Discomfort's the wrong word, but being forced into a career she's good at but doesn't enjoy. I'm sure at least a lot of you understand that mentality. And I, I comment on this as well. Because some of the time, I often wonder what kind of a life Sela would have been able to lead if she hadn't been basically shoved into either the military or the Tal Shiar in such a manner. Oh yeah, by the way, my own personal theory is that she is specifically Tal Shiar. High-ranking Tal Shiar. However, all of my evidence for that sits on Star Trek Online. I'll just go ahead and admit that, since the Tal Shiar end up being basically her personal faction for the early parts of the Romulan story arc. <sighs> Anyways... Nevertheless, it is the end of Sela. Goodbye, Sela. It was nice knowing you. Because she does something amazingly dumb. She leaves Picard, Spock, and Data alone and unattended in her room. What? Now, there's a lot wrong with this, ep this episode and its overall construction of the script. But this right here is probably the most blatant thing. That even people who aren't really thinking about the large-scale look at this and go, Huh? Really? So... Um... Let's talk about the plan. See, well, actually, no. Let's talk about... Well, I'm sorry, I, I, I forgot. Let's talk about the, the mystery, the investigation. Here's the thing. I mentioned last episode that I want to talk about more about the mystery here, and this is because the mystery, in my opinion, is one of the other two major flaws with these two episodes. The mystery is one, and the invasion's the other. I'll talk about the invasion in a moment. The reason I say the mystery is a flaw is because it's well-crafted, interesting, dynamic, shows a different side to stuff. It's good in every respect except for the fact that it's completely unnecessary. It's a side quest that isn't even completed because by about the time at which they really start to figure out what the hell's going on, the answer is literally dumped into their lap and they just kind of skip to the end. Now, the Enterprise was keenly poised to deal with the situation as a consequence and almost assuredly led to the destruction of the Romulan tr troop transports. Sure. But um, that's it. They, in other words, the information they gathered or were trying to gather 
didn't help anything. It didn't push things forward. It was basically ancillary. And I feel like that's a bit of a flaw, especially since it's very well constructed, both in part one and in part two. To wit, there's a nice bit where they go to this bar. And I like basically everything about that scene. There's a bunch of aliens there, most of whom we've seen before, actually. Um, Harriet Leiter, Letter? I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is the woman who portrays Amory, although there's another woman who portrays her voice. She's awesome. She's the multi-hand uh, cello, wrong word, organ player. That's awesome. I like the way that Riker and her work together. Um, <laughs> I don't like the fact that Riker doesn't have any coins to put in there because that doesn't make any sense, but let's not get into that. I like the salt lick. Just a neat little thing. I like the atmosphere. I think I already mentioned that. I like how this is the actual first mention ever of Klingon opera. And I know musical taste is musical taste, but I actually kind of like the opera as portrayed here. Malota! Then the Ferengi shows up. Now, I kind of like him, too, even though he's probably the weakest part of the mystery, other than the lack of conclusion that I mentioned already. Because the Ferengi's pathetic. Now... Remember, at this point in time, DS9 hasn't come out yet and basically reinvented the Ferengi. So at this point in time, Ferengi only really serve two purposes, being pathetic and being the brunt of jokes. And that's exactly what he is here. He's fat and ugly and stupid and insensitive. <laughs> and he's hired two women who are way out of his league to, to, to fawn over him. Like He's just there to be, to, to be disgusted at and then feel satisfied when Riker just, oh, you're going to do this or die. That's it. He's a bit of a weak link in the thing. It would have been nice to have a Ferengi who, you know, he's over there and he's actually threatening. He looks at Riker and he says, oh, Federation, huh? Well, that means that something I've sold recently is something that's of interest to you. Why don't you go ahead and sit down and let me tell know about it? And Riker's like, we're looking about Vulcan ships. And he kind of tilts his head a little bit. Okay, but that one's going to cost you a bit more. And, and Riker's like, like okay, I'm, I'll, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to not revoke your three. Not, not do the, and then have the Ferengi say something else in return. Basically show that he was speaking on the same level as Riker. You know, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you, but you got to do this, or you got to do this, or it's got to be this for you. Something to get a quid pro pro. And Riker's like, fine, now tell me what you know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. Galorndon Core, that's what I know. And just say it in a kind of knowing way. He's like, who was your buyer? I don't know, but it was on Galorndon Core. Remember, we know what Galorndon Core is. We've been there. We had an old episode about it. So, the implication is then very obvious, and we get the idea that this weapons dealer is actually someone to be, you know, I don't know, I guess threatened by? It, it makes him not pathetic, is the point. Rather than, because I, mean, I had to look at this guy and I'm thinking, okay, I'm sorry, I don't know about you guys, but Weapons dealers usually are, are selling pe weapons to people who would have no problem bossing this guy around, stealing from him or killing him if they felt like it. So, yeah, anyways. So then they go to Galorndon Core, and then the, the side plot abruptly ends because they find out about the Conquest plot, which is the second biggest flaw of this episode. And it is, and when I say the second, I actually mean the first. It is by far the most overwhelming flaw with this episode. I feel like there's the kernel of an actual idea here, but as presented, this is nonsense. The overall plan, let's, let's cover the plan here, okay? The Romulans are going to do a surprise invasion of Vulcan. Land troops, there's a warbird obviously in support, so they'll have some kind of aerial support, and occupy Vulcan before anyone can do anything about it. 
I don't know how to even begin explaining all of the ways that's stupid. First of all, they actually mentioned in the episode that the number of troops on those transports is over 2,000. That's not enough to occupy a city. They're trying to occupy a planet. One of the things that I always find, forgive me for segueing here for a moment, one of the things that always irritated me about the Clone Wars over in Star Wars is that they kept insisting that the entire army of the entire Republic, which was a galactic civilization, was in like the two million range. Whereas if you were to go by some of the you know, documents that were designed for the EU and whatnot, a two million army is usually referred to as a systems army for good reason. In real life, a 2,000-strong army is a joke. And that's for a single nation, which takes up a scrap of a continent, which is not an entire planet. The very idea of this has always it's bothered me ever since I was a kid. I was like, that's it? That's all you got? Three ships, one warbird, and 2,000 troops. That's, that's pathetic. Now, of course, you could argue, well, they don't need that much. They're conquering Vulcan. Okay, this is the second major flaw of the plan. Why are they so interested in conquering Vulcan? See, the, the issue here is the Romulans have been trying for uh, about a year and a half at this point to deal with the Federation Klingon problem. That makes sense. Everything about that is, is sensical and logical and political and, and fits perfectly because they're the other superpowers on the scene. Dealing with those is something that has to be dealt with. Duh, right? The fact that the Klingons and the Federation are not only still together but still allies would mean that Romulan plans couldn't operate smoothly. In other words, if they had succeeded at pushing the Duras sisters into control of the Klingon Empire and then used that influence to remove the Klingon military component from the Federation, meaning that they would either only have to deal with the Federation or would have Klingon allies to deal with the Federation, then yeah, conquering Vulcan makes a lot of sense all of a sudden. What does not make sense is proceeding with this invasion in the wake of that total defeat of the Redemption Arc. Now, you could argue that that's the point, that the Romulans are sufficiently stubborn or stupid or self-important or whatever, that they have decided, oh, we're just going to go ahead with the plan anyways. But, of course, this leads me to well, the, the, other, the third problem here, because the second problem is this is going to provoke Federation response like crazy, which is also going to provoke Klingon response. However, the one and only thing they say in the entire episode to address that massive flaw there is, oh, we'll be ready for the Federation. How? The entirety of their strategy, as stated, is will be too entrenched to be dealt with. What? So then, <laughs> we get to the third plan. Why are they so insistent on conquering Vulcan of all places? Explain the, <laughs> the logic of that to me. How strategically useful is Vulcan? How many resources does it add to the Empire? How, how much knowledge and wealth does it add to the Star Empire? In, in exchange for the significant negatives, which I've already mentioned, of course. Like, that's how conquest works. You don't just conquer all willy-nilly. You take something that has a net benefit, right? It's one of the first things I had to learn back when I first started playing Forex games back in the day. You don't just conquer a city because it's there, unless you're going for a 100% run. You conquer a city because it adds something to your Empire. Otherwise, it's a drain on it. Right? This is very basic leadership stuff here. 
Now, you can argue that the Romulans are just stupid. That is the way out of all of this. Just say the Romulans are dumb, and that just explains everything away. But I find it hard to believe that the Romulan military, and based on presentation, the Romulan Senate, were both in favor of the idea of going and taking Vulcan for no stated benefit and an acknowledged provocation of their greatest enemy, someone who they have many times refused to provoke. It's also worth noting that, as a result of this episode, the fact that they had planned an invasion of Vulcan, and in fact started an invasion of Vulcan, is made public knowledge. Now, I know I've said this many, many times, but I'm just going to say this one more time. That's an act of war. <laughs> like, there's so many times that nations in Star Trek... I know most writers don't think of this. I know they don't, because they, they, they've said so in interviews. But there's so many times where a nation will do something in Star Trek that is an act of war. And that's what this is. Now, of course, the Federation would never act on that because, oh, we don't want to go to war. <laughs> no, no, we're still dealing with the Borg situation, right? But at the same time, everyone just kind of just ignores this from this point onward. Oh, yeah, one more thing. These ships, they were moving at warp one. Warp one's the speed of light. That is slow. Really, really slow. It's called FTL because it's faster than light. I'm, I'm sorry. But the idea of an invasion force going from Romulus to Vulcan, which by any map you're using is a freaking long distance, because Vulcan's pretty close to Earth, uh, is insane. <laughs> Warp 1. 2,000 troops. Someone did not think this one through. Maybe this is really Sila's strategy in a nutshell. Maybe she is super powerful and an idiot when it comes to tactics. And maybe that's what this is all about. This is some kind of insane political machination by some senator or maybe the proconsul himself. Because remember, he's still in power by late Deep Space Nine. So maybe this is his plan to show her how incredibly stupid she is and remove her from power. I mean, we do never see her again after all. I don't know. I just think it wasn't thought out. The invasion plan fails, blah, 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 blah. Spock and Picard have one last scene. This is a good scene. But what I like best about it is as the two are talking, Picard offers Spock to mind meld with him, since he never melded with Sarek. And what I like best about that isn't just the intimacy implied, or the fact that a mind meld has been stated many, 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 many times, especially up to this point, to be a very deep, intimate thing. You don't just do it with anyone. It's not a scanning device. You know, this is a deep personal connection between two individuals. So Picard offers this knowing what that means, having already done it, and Spock accepts knowing what this means. And then Spock smiles. And I like that. I like that a lot. I'm sorry, I sound a little bit off. I'm still recovering, of course, but more to the point. This episode kind of hit me because... Well, because the obvious, it is a damned shame. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I'll see you next time.